Our sermon today will be taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. This is the Word of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into its heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Amen. Thanks, Sam. Friends, let's pray one more time before we go into our sermon. Father, again, we beg you one more time before we open up your word to help us realize that understanding it, true understanding of it, cannot come from any preacher, but must come from your spirit, making your truths real in our lives. I beg you, you do that today. Give us the brain capacity, but more importantly, give us a soft heart to receive what it is our minds understand and to believe you are the Son of God who has come to pursue us for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, welcome again to Covenant City Church. If this is your first time here, or if you came in later in the service, my name is Tazar. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And if you're looking around the room and you're thinking to yourself, my goodness, you know, how crowded is this church? Don't be fooled. It's just because it's Christmas, okay? It's not like this every Sunday. But that's what you expect, right? To an extent. You expect Christmas services and services like this to find an increase of new faces, an increase of visitors, which I think, personally, could make preaching at a Christmas service a little bit harder than normal services. How so? Because today, there is a mixed group of people, and the variety and the diversity of people here uh, has increased. So you may be here today, and you identify yourself to be a Christian, and perhaps you've come to church every Sunday, and church is a familiar thing to you. Or on the other side of the spectrum, you may not identify as a Christian, and you wouldn't normally go to church, but you're here today to explore Christianity. You want to get to know more about who Jesus is, what the Bible is all about. Or perhaps you're here today, and you do identify as a Christian, but yet you find the church sort of like an estranged friend to you. You haven't been there for a while, and the memory of it is holding on by a thread weaved by these occasional holiday visits. And usually the third group that I mentioned earlier does end up becoming the majority of those who come to Christmas services like this. And 
And look, pastors know this. That's why, if you haven't figured out, during services like this, pastors can sometimes start to act like bitter grandparents. You know what I mean? You haven't visited them all year. You know, and they're secretly hurt. Uh, so the one time you do come, they make sure to be all passy-aggressy on you. Like, you know, where have you been all year? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And I chose this passage today because I think this can address everyone here, no matter where you came from or, or where you are in your walk with the Lord. Because essentially, I think from all those three groups, we're all asking the same question. And it's this. Why should I worship Jesus? Why should I worship Jesus? Why should my heart fall in worship of him? Now, those of you exploring Christianity, you're asking that question from the perspective maybe of research, right? You're saying, show me, convince me, you know, why should that be the case? Those of you that are here and you might find yourself, you're a Christian, but you find yourself estranged from the church, you may be asking that same question, but more from the perspective of longing. You know, why do I find myself worshiping Jesus only in these holiday seasons? You know, then throughout the year, I kind of barely think of him. And those of you who do constantly come to church and worship Jesus every Sunday, maybe you're asking that question from the perspective of progress. How can I fall in deeper love and deeper worship of Jesus Christ? You see different angles maybe, but essentially, whether we're researching, longing, or progressing, we're asking the same question, a question that I hope this passage would address. There's three things I want to point out from our passage about Jesus. Point one, who he is. Point two, who he came for. And point three, how he got them. Who he is, who he came for, how he got them. Let's jump to point one, who he is. Now, let me just share a little bit about the context of our passage before we dive in. Okay, verse one, if you, if you look at it carefully uh, in the PowerPoint, well, in, in your printouts, you'll see that all of this happened during what? The feast of the Passover. Okay, what is that? Well, if you remember, go all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember, God told his people one day in Exodus to kill a bunch of lambs and the blood of these lambs you are to put on the doorposts of your houses as a mark of forgiveness of sins. So, whichever family unit whose household is marked by the blood of this lamb, God would pass over. God will not visit them for their sin since their sins has been atoned for by the sacrificial lamb, okay? So every year, the Israelites would celebrate what happened in Exodus to remember God's grace, God's mercy back in Exodus. So Jesus here was celebrating this feast with his disciples. Now here's what's interesting. Notice, notice the way Jesus is described here at this feast. Okay? If you pay close attention, notice the way he's described is very godlike. You'll find Jesus being described as having characteristics that's only ascribed to God himself throughout the Bible. Okay? For example, stick with me to verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, first, look here at the perfection of Jesus' character. Jesus is described as having, it being perfectly selfless. Where do we see that? Well, it says, having loved, past tense, he loved to the end, future tense. There's a constantness to his love. There's a perfection to his love that does not change, even in the most difficult seasons of his life. Look again one more time at verse 1. It says, 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world. This is a difficult season in Jesus' life. What's this hour referring to? It's referring to the cross, okay? Throughout the book of John, the cross, the hour, is always described as it's about to happen. It's going to happen. It's not happened yet, but it will happen. It's always described as that until we come to our passage today. Then finally, for the first time in the book of John, it says the hour had come. The intensity toward the cross is building up, and now it's here. And Jesus knew it. He knew it. He knew the hour had come. But yet, even in the midst of the pressures of the cross closing in, what do you find him doing? He's serving his disciples. He's washing his feet. And you're thinking, are you kidding me? See, I have this condition. It's a real condition. It's called sick, whiny husband syndrome. (laughs) It's when I have a sore throat, but I act like the world is ending. I don't know if some of you experience that. It's real. Ask a wife. Okay, they'll, they'll agree with you. You know, on, on a normal day, maybe, you know, I'll be somewhat selfless. But when I'm sick, or when I'm scared, or when I'm sad, or when I'm feeling pressure from work, you know, pain, what it, what it makes us do, it tends to make us cave inward, right? I become a little bit more whiny. I become a little bit more self-centered. But Jesus here, amidst the pressures of the cross closing in on him, he remained perfectly selfless. Having loved, he loved to the end. So the first thing we see by Jesus here, we see his perfection, and we see his consistency. The fancy word for that is his immutability and changeable, constantly perfect. Okay, second, look at how Jesus' love is described here. It sounds repetitive. Having loved, he loved. That's weird. Having loved, he loved. That sounds repetitive, doesn't it? Why was it described that way? That's intentional by the author. This is another characteristic of God that's ascribed unto Jesus. What do I mean? Okay, rewind your brains with me one more time to the Old Testament. Remember how God described himself to Moses again in Exodus? God said that I am who I am. You see that repetitiveness? What's with that? It's like a broken record. You know, I am who I am, who I am, who I am. What's the point of that? Well, what God's trying to point out is that he's utterly independent from anything. I am who I am. I do because I do. I act because I act. I decide because I decide. My existence, my wisdom, my actions, my decisions is not dependent upon anything. Jesus here, having loved, he loved. What's the author trying to say by that repetition? He's saying his love is independent, uncoerced, unaffected by anything on this earth. See, you and I, humans, I think you are, we have a hard time understanding this, right? When we love somebody, there's always usually a reason for it. Either they have a good personality or we like, you know, their their characters or they're easy to talk to or maybe they have the same hobbies as us, the same taste in art, you know. Maybe they make us feel romantic feelings. But Jesus here is saying, it's profound. I don't love you because of who you are. I love you because who I am. I am love. And by the way, Jesus himself, this isn't explicit enough. He himself claims to be this great I am. Remember what he said in John 8. He said, before Abraham was, I am. At that moment, the religious people picked up stones, wanted to stone him. It's like, how could you say that? That's blasphemous. How could you claim to be God? So... From this one verse, 
we see all these godlike characteristics from Jesus, his perfection of character, the unchangeable nature of his perfection, his complete independence from anything else. One last thing I want to point out, just in case, in case we're not that convinced. Look at verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, think about that sentence. God the Father gave Jesus authority over all things into his hands. That means, on top of his perfection and unchangeableness and complete independence, Jesus has equal authority with God the Father. Have you noticed throughout the Bible, any time um, uh, an angel or somebody gets bowed down to, every time somebody bows down to an angel or another human being, you know their reaction? There's this gut reaction that says, whoa, what are you doing? Don't do that. Get up. Get up. Don't bow to me. I'm just a human. But if you've noticed, every time people bow down to Jesus, essentially Jesus says, stay there. He doesn't tell them to get up. And, and you're starting to think, why is that? What's he trying to say? What's he claiming? He's going around telling people he can forgive sins. He can't forgive sins. Only God can. What's he saying? What's the Bible trying to say? He's not just a good person. He's God. See, this is the first thing you've got to know if you're going to grow in your worship of Jesus. Because look, if Jesus to you is just a good person, your heart's not going to go all out in worship mode. It's just not. You're not going to worship a good person. You might respect him, right? You might admire him. You might look up to him. But you won't full out worship him. But if he's God, oh my. And that's a different story, isn't it? Your heart may be lured a little more to actually worship him. But knowing Jesus is God, that's not enough to melt your heart for him. You also need to know what he came for or rather, who he came for. Second point. Now, at this point, you may be saying, okay, I'm somewhat convinced, or I'm convinced, uh, that Jesus Christ is ascribed God-like characters here, and he is, in fact, God himself. But you also see him here being described as a man. He's sitting down, right, with the disciples. He's eating. He's drinking. Aren't, aren't those human being descriptions, you know, sitting down, eating, drinking, aren't those humans act, human actions? Because of human needs, because you're tired, you sit down. Because you're hungry, you eat. Because you're thirsty, you drink. Those are, those are weak human attributes. So which is he? Is he God or human? And the answer is yes. He is God who became man. That's the whole point of verse 4. I'm going to explore that with you here in a little bit. This is the whole point, friends, of Christmas. Look at verse 4. This detailed description of what Jesus did. What's the first thing you see him doing? Verse 4, Jesus rose from the supper, okay? He's rising up from his seat. At this dinner, Jesus would have sat in the place of authority. This is meant to be symbolic of who he is. He is God, but yet he, le he left. He rose from that place of power. We read in our call to worship earlier, if you want to take out your, your bulletins one more time, and go back to our call to worship. Philippians 2 it says this, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, you see, he was sitting in a place of authority. What did he do? He rose up from his seat. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's, that's what it's symbolizing here, okay? And then what did Jesus do after he rose from the supper? 
he laid aside his outer garments and he put on servants' clothes, verse 4 says. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. Only servants would do that back then. Symbolizing what? We'll look again at our call to worship in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He rose from his place of authority. What did he do? He emptied himself, Philippians 2 says. He, he took off his robe. And then he did what? He took on the form of a servant. He put on a towel. Meaning what? Meaning he was willing to be born in the likeness of men. That's what verse 4 is all about. God rose from his place of authority, took off some of his divine attributes. Why? How? By taking on flesh, blood, these attributes of a human baby. This is often what is called the incarnation. Incarnation, God becoming man. Our other pastor, Gray, has this funny explanation of the incarnation. If you ask him, what's the incarnation? He'll ask you, have you ever been to a Mexican restaurant and ordered the carne asada? And if you say yes, then he'll say, well, there's the incarnation. What he's saying is carne is meat, you know, incarnation. He's not that funny. So blame him <laughs> for the joke. It's terrible, terrible preacher. Um, <laughs> but I think that's a helpful way to remember it. It's the same Latin root word. Carne means meat. Incarnation means God putting on meat, flesh, bones, you know. He rose from his heavenly throne. He came down on us. He put on servant's clothes as a helpless child. And people have a hard time with this. This is the one thing usually a lot of people have a hard time with, with, with Christianity, you know. They think, how can this be? How can this be? I, this is why I don't believe in the Christian God, you know. How can the infinitely powerful God Commit an act that makes him so weak. A human baby, that's not greatness. That's not glorious. But I ask you, tell me, tell me, what is greater than being willing to give up your power for love? Hmm? What's greater than that? That's exactly what makes God so glorious. He was willing to give up his power. Why? To be with us. That's a whole point of the foot washing in verse 5. Let's continue in our passage. See, back then, when you would travel far, far away, and then you arrive at someone's house, the symbol of the, uh, the, the host of the house accepting you into their house is by, they would order their servant to wash your feet. That would signify that I'm welcoming you to stay for a while, you know, not just one night or two. You're here to stay. I want to commune with you. I want to fellowship with you. That's the, that's the point of the foot washing. That's what Jesus is doing here by washing the disciples' feet. He's saying, I came here. I gave up my power. Why? So I can fellowship with you. So I can fellowship with you. Let me get back to what I said earlier. If, if Jesus to you is just a good person, or if he to you is just a founder of another world religion amongst many, if Christmas to you is just a holiday amongst many other holidays. You'll never find your heart bending its stubborn knees to him, ever. But if you believe in the Bible's claim that Jesus Christ is God himself, and not only that, but he gave up his power to be with you, then, then just maybe, you'll find the knees of your heart 
week and a bit. And you might think, what? But that there still may be a refusal to this because, again, simultaneously, perhaps a lot of Sarah thinking, but surely he didn't come for me. I'm, I'm just not that religious of a person. You know, my life's been a mess. And I just feel like it's a bit prideful for me to assume that he would come all the way down here for me. That, that's a bit prideful. But let me ask you, who were the disciples at the supper? Who were they? Moral people? Were they religious superiors? Were they stand-up members of the community? No. These were a group of bad-mannered fishermen, greedy tax collectors, you know, who, like many of us, perhaps feel unworthy to have fellowship with God. That's why Peter said in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? Why did Peter say that? Because he didn't want to be prideful. You know, he didn't want to assume that he deserves a relationship with God. So he rejected Jesus' offer, which, I want to argue, is in itself actually a form of pride. It is. Here's what I mean. A lot of you may agree. It's prideful for us to think that God wants to have a relationship with us because we are righteous. It's prideful to think that, and, and you'd be right. But I want to ask you to consider this. It's also a form of pride to think that God would want you less because of your sin. How so? Because both people in each scenario think that their actions are powerful enough to influence God. I want to propose to you that both self-exaltation and self-pity is a form of self-centeredness. It's a form of thinking too highly of ourselves as if our successes or failures can influence the decisions of the eternal God. And look at how Jesus responds here to Peter's self-centeredness. He just continues to wash his feet. It's like he completely ignored it. Saying what? He's saying, Peter, oh, Peter, don't think too highly of yourself. I have loved, so I love to the end. I am who I am. I exist because I exist. I do because I do. I decide because I decide. And I love you, Peter. Why? Because I love. Because I love. Your righteousness can't lure me in, nor can your sin repel me. Me washing your feet is less a testimony of your character and more of a testimony to my love. Do you see that? What if? What if God did all this to glorify himself? What if God is pleased to choose the worst of the worst so that he can display to the world the depths of his love and mercy? What if Christmas is less about you and more about God? There's an odd comfort, isn't there, in self-forgetfulness. What's the point of Christmas? It's God coming down to us in the flesh to show the world just how far and wide and deep his love is that he would pursue a group of undeserving, no-good sinners for himself. But I don't quite think that melted our hearts. I didn't know if that quite did the trick either. What we must see still is the rest of the passage. We saw who he is. We saw who he came for. 
But how? How did he get them? Last point. So Jesus explains to Peter here in verse 8, look, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you won't have any share with me. You're not going to be with me. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, will your sin speak louder than my call? Will your sin speak louder than my call? And Peter finally takes his eyes off himself in verse 9 and says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and, and my head. It seems like Peter's starting to get it, you know, good. But not quite completely yet. There's something Peter is missing. What's he missing? See, many people today, I think like Peter, miss it. We think the, the foot washing here symbolizes the cleansing of sin. I think that's what Peter thought. That's why Peter said, wash all of me, you know, wash me clean. But remember, that's not the point of the foot washing. Remember, the foot washing was not cleansing. It was just telling us that God wants to enter into a relationship with us, into fellowship with us. But in order for God to have a relationship with his people, something else must happen first. That's why Jesus responds in verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. Jesus responds to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So, summary. You want to enter into a relationship with God. You're here this Sunday, right? A relationship with God symbolized by foot washing. You got to first be cleansed, symbolized by this bathing. Your feet can't be washed. You can't enter into a relationship with him unless you are first, Jesus says, bathed, cleansed. Okay? This is the point. Okay, we're asking, so then... How do I be bathed? How am I cleansed from our sins? I know I've covered a lot, but, but stick with me. This is, this is important. How can you be washed from your sins? The answer can be found in the timing of when Jesus rose from the supper. The timing of when Jesus rose from the supper. S- stick with me. Look at verse 2. When did Jesus rise up? to do all this stuff. It's during the supper, not before the supper or after the supper, but abruptly in the middle of it. This was odd back then. You ever seen a groomsman or a bridesmaid had a little bit too much to drink, and then in the wedding, they got up in the middle of the dinner, and then they started just talking about themselves. I realize that's a really weird way to explain Jesus here, but... Essentially, he's, he's kind of doing, the point there is doing the same thing. He got up in the middle of the supper, not before or after. Why? To steal the attention away to himself. To steal the attention away from what? From the lambs in the Old Testament. Remember the Passover? What was it all about? The Passover was about God cleansing our sins from these lambs in the past, Right? And Jesus here is saying, they're not the answer. It's interesting. Do you remember one of the names of Jesus in the New Testament? He is what? The Lamb of God. Why is Jesus wanting to steal away the attention from these Passover lambs to himself? This is an act of deep love. He's saying, look, the ones that can truly bathe you, the ones that can truly, the one that can truly cleanse you from your sin, 
are not these lambs in the Old Testament. Don't look to them for cleansing. Look to who? Look to me. What's he talking about? The cross. We have the full picture of Christmas now. Why did God come? Why was a child born unto us? Why did God take on weak human features, such as hands and feet, in the form of a helpless babe? Hmm. Yes, so that one day those hands can serve his disciples, absolutely. Yes, so that one day those feet can walk amongst them, absolutely. But ultimately, he took on these hands and feet of a human babe so that one day, when the hour has come, those hands and those feet can be nailed unto a cross for us. He's the Lamb of God. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Those, those Passover sacrificial lambs, they're meant to point to Jesus. You know what this means? Every other religion says, obedience comes before acceptance. In other words, the washing of the feet, the relationship, the fellowship, right, the commitment, that has to be proven first. If you succeed in this, then you'll be bathed, then you'll be washed. Jesus here flips that completely the other way around. Christianity says, the bathing, the cleansing of the sin must come first before the foot washing, before the fellowship, you see. Acceptance comes before obedience. You know, perhaps our Christianity has often been dry. I think a lot of times that's due to us thinking that our obedience can make God love us more. If we obey God in order to be cleansed, that's not really an act of obedience to God, is it? That's an act of self-love unto ourselves. We're not doing it for God, we're doing it for me, for us. And your mind may not realize that, but your heart will sense it. It'll know deep inside, you're not doing this for God, you're doing this so that you can be cleansed, you're doing this so that you can get to heaven or whatever else it may be. The cross, the gospel, it purifies your motives because you have already been accepted. So now what? Obey. You have been cleansed. You have been bathed, so now have fellowship with him. Have you been bathed? Have you? There's one, one last thing I want to point out. There's something mentioned in verse 2 that, that I find very interesting. There's a character there named who is also, again, described in, in verse 11, in the last verse of our passage. Who is it? Judas. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Isn't this interesting? Apparently, amongst everyone there, not all of them have received the bathing. Not all of them are clean. But yet, think about it, all of their feet were washed. 
All of their feet were washed, but yet not all of them were clean. What does this mean? This means, look, we can have all the outward appearances of having fellowship with Christ. Like Judas, right? He was a part of this group. His feet was washed just like them. He ate with them. He hung with them. He wore the same clothes they wore. He walked, talked, acted like one of them. But yet, Jesus says, he was never really bathed. And this is a profound statement the Bible's making here. Listen, here's what the Bible's saying. It's saying, just because you hang out at Starbucks, it doesn't make you a cup of coffee. It's saying, just because you hang out in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. It's saying, just because you hang out at church, it does not make you clean. It does not make you a Christian. Have you been bathed? Don't be like Peter. Don't be like Peter who's so preoccupied with his own sin that he wanted to clean himself up before he got into the bath. Who does that? <laughs> Jump in. Jump in. Don't wait till you're good enough. You'll wait forever. And in him, find yourself clean, not through your own efforts, but through the blood of Christ. But also, don't be like Judas. Don't be like Judas, who is unaware of his sin and behaved like a Christian his whole life. He fooled everyone around him, maybe even himself, that he has fellowship with Christ, but yet he never jumped in the bath and he was never clean to begin with. Have you been bathed? Don't be like that. Instead, embrace the message of Christmas, the message of the cross, that says what? Yes. Yes, you're much more sinful than you ever dare imagine. But oh my, you're also much more loved than you ever dare dream. That's Christmas. God was born as a baby and lived the perfect life we should have lived but failed to every day, yet died the death we deserve. Why? To display his own glory have fellowship with you. Be bathed. Then perhaps, then perhaps you'll find your stubborn knees start to bend and worship him who gave you his all. Him who having loved you, loved you to the end. Let's pray. What an unbelievable reality this is. That you, the glorious God, the all-powerful being, would lay down his power, come down as a weak man to live the life we should have lived, but yet when you succeeded to do so, you didn't take all the credit for yourself. You gave that trophy to us. You gave that righteousness to us and took our sins upon yourself so that you could die as our substitute on that cross. Oh, the true Lamb of God, Make this message clear and vivid to our hearts. And I pray that today not just be another holiday for those who are exploring this gospel message. Help them explore continually. Help them talk about it. Give them people to continue to 
think this through with reasonably, logically. And Father, for those who are here, who've been to church their whole lives, I pray you remind them of your love and bend their knees even more to the worship of the one and true God, the one and only who died for them. And Father, for those here who might find themselves a bit estranged from the church, for whatever reason that may be, help them navigate through whatever that reason is. But as you do so, show them that you love them and you love them to the end. Help them continue to explore, to grow, and fulfill their longing that they have found home. Traveling far, they might have, but in you they found home, and you welcome them into your heavenly abode, not by the washing of feet, but by a cross. Help make this message clear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.